Kaveri Call is an award-winning director, writer, and producer whose films have shown on television, in theaters, and at film festivals, including Telluride, Rotterdam, and Doc NYC. Her most recent film, The Bengali, is a documentary that explores the ties between South Asians and African Americans in the U.S. It's triggered by a lost chapter of history about the first South Asian men who came to the U.S. and in the East Coast they married African American women. This was way back in the 19th and 20th century. I take an African American woman, Fatima, to India with me in search of her family's past. When she said, I have a grandfather from India, I was surprised. She was surprised that he was from Bengal, which is where I'm from. In this episode, Kaveri explains her approach to independently making films and taking risks to produce her work. We also discuss creating work that deviates from traditional approaches to storytelling and making documentaries that challenge viewers' perceptions. I think there was an emphasis on who you interview, how you interview, what you ask, what you don't ask, and then how you present it in a very linear form. Film, given how malleable it is, doesn't need to be so linear. That's all coming up in a few moments. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this is CME Presents, where we explore how the digital stories and media that we watch, listen to, and experience are created. I'm Jacob, and this is a conversation with Kaveri Call. Kaveri, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I want to talk, of course, about your prolific career, the work you've done, the film The Mingali that we'll talk about in a bit. But as I was looking at the titles of your films, I was thinking about, too, just how the documentary medium has changed quite a bit, just in terms of maybe the quote-unquote supposed rules of what documentary means, the expectations in terms of aesthetics or visual choices. Has your notion or idea of what the role of documentary director means changed? Or even do you try to frame what the documentary director should do when you set out to make a project? You know, I went into documentary filmmaking as an independent filmmaker, and I thought it was an incredible medium to tell incredible stories. I realized there were certain rules being imposed on me, and early on, sometimes I felt I was supposed to listen. Can I ask what some of those rules were, what you felt was being imposed? Well, I think there was an emphasis on who you interview, how you interview, what you ask, what you don't ask, and then how you present it in a very linear form. Film, given how malleable it is, doesn't need to be so linear, so straightforward. There was also an emphasis on things that come from conventional filmmaking of many years, that there had to be good versus bad, right versus wrong. And perhaps because I have different cultural affiliations, both as an American and as an Indian, as a, someone who has lived in many other countries as well, I saw the grays and I thought nuance and complexity make a film interesting. But it also, the films themselves kind of plotted out who was good and who was bad and the good one. Sometimes that works. And a lot of times it misses all the shades and nuances. I was reading some of your past interviews and something that did strike me was this idea of you mentioning it would be nice to carve out more spaces where 
films don't just follow this narrative. There are good people and bad people, the good person transcending the evil person. Those stories that are somewhat very common in mainstream film and cinema, at least in the States. Why is it important to carve out these other spaces? Well, I think that there is no all good. There is no all bad. Of course, there are things that we would want to see done away with in our troubled world. There's no doubt about that. But to bring people close to a subject, often bringing people who are not necessarily knowledgeable about that subject, close to that subject, one needs to give space to show the largeness of the characters, the place, the story. As I kept making films, I realized I didn't have to listen and I should follow my own voice. I don't think there are any should-dos when it comes to filmmaking for any director. If it moves your story forward, you do it. Right. And documentary filmmaking has blossomed. It's become less of an ignored format. Many more people are making documentaries. And I think the form to some degree is being explored to some degree. There's always a push and pull between those who want to explore and those who say why. Right. And I think the form can hold many things. I know I bring to documentaries a background in studying literature, a love of the visual arts, a passion for music and theater. And I think all of that can go into filmmaking. And documentaries are starting to recognize the validity of that. Talking about this reminds me of a TEDx talk that was published in 2016 that you did. You mentioned this idea, part of the reason you make films is ideally to put people in other people's shoes so they can see the varying shades and degrees of a person and humanity. You know, maybe move past this monolithic idea we're describing of who we think someone is or preconceived notion of who they are. How does one do that through filmmaking? Over the years of working in this space, have you cultivated certain approaches or ideas of how to do that productively? You know, I think it's valuable to go beyond preconceived notions, both in films and in our lives. I certainly don't start to make a film saying, well, how do I go beyond a preconceived notion in this film? I build a relationship with the people in my film, I think trust is important. I think it's important for them to get to know me as well as for me to get to know them. That is the fundamental grounding of trust. And out of that comes a relationship in which we're comfortable with one another, with what we have to say, with the space we inhabit. And that can bring in people other than those who are familiar with the subject. That's what I'd like to do. I think films can do that. Films are a powerful medium. They can go way beyond time and space. And that's only if you give people room to meet people they might not want to meet otherwise. There's this time you speak about where you go to Harvard, you enroll in school there, and you're introduced to this film class or or the cinema class. You can probably label it better than I can. And you see certain films that are very influential to you and kind of light that fire to make films. 
Was there a point in time before that where filmmaking was on your radar as something you wanted to do? Or is that something that came as you enrolled in school and you're introduced to these films you'd never seen before? I had always loved films, even as a very young child under the age of six in India. I loved going to films. What did you love about them? I loved the magic Mm. of just entering a world that I didn't necessarily know sitting in a dark room with other people whom I didn't know, but we were sharing this experience. So I would say throughout my life, I was someone who indulged in film appreciation. I used to come in to New York City without necessarily telling my parents to see films. The covert run to New York City. Yes, but then (laughs) to do what? To see films. (laughs) A true rebel. Watching cinema, mom and dad, you'll never catch me. There you go. (laughs) What are you going to do about it? (laughs) That's right. Enriching the mind. Take that. And I saw films that I was very lucky to see because there were a few people who programmed those films in theaters in New York City. Dan Talbot of New Yorker Films was one of them. He was very knowledgeable and very open to cinema from all over the world. So I would rush to see the films he'd released was only when I took these courses at Harvard, and actually it was only by chance, a friend I ran into on campus said, did you hear about this class? I said, no. Boy, you should really take it. I think you'd like it. Of course, those days you listen to your friends. They're like, why not? (laughs) Why not? It was a class offered by a very quirky Englishman, a professor at Harvard, and it was about the films of Satyajit Ray. Of course, I'm Bengali, and I loved it. And then he did a course on the films of the French New Wave, Truffaut, Godard. I loved it. And it was then that I knew I wanted to become a filmmaker because I saw the spirit with which these directors made their films. There was a sense of, this is what I want to tell you. Come with me. I loved that. Had you ever seen work like that before? Was that some of the first moments where you considered what was possible that you hadn't considered before? I had seen films like that. I appreciated those films. They excited me. But it was in these classes when we analyzed the films and what went into the making of them that I thought, like all these directors, I like to write. I like music. I like all these different art forms and they can all go into making a film. And then, you know, I was born in India, grew up in America. I'm a woman. In many ways, I was invisible to the world. So Seeing the possibility of making these films gave me power. I could tell my stories. And that's what drove me into filmmaking. So then you realize you can tell your stories. What is the process like of taking these influences and moving forward and saying, I'm actually going to do this? You know, when you're very young, especially in those days, I think it's different to be young and stressed out these days. But when I was young, there was a wonderful, blissful ignorance about how difficult things might become. Ignorance is great. Ignorance was great. Ignorance gave hope. Ignorance opened up possibility. Uh, Ignorance triggered just jumping into it. I spent a number of years, again, I've traveled often to India. I lived for a while in France, influenced, of course, by the French New Wave. And I was very lucky that a documentary production house took me in to work as an apprentice editor. That's hardly a high-level job, but it's so exciting. It was so, so exciting. 
to just wind a reel of film from one end to the other to feel a part of the process. But editing also taught me a lot about directing. Just putting a film together once you have all the footage gives you some insight into what you need to get when you step out to direct. So then I made the transition into directing. And that's when I learned that it wasn't so easy. The ignorance is fleeting. Yeah, yeah. It was really shocking. I thought, you know, my stories would be interesting to everybody. But I learned very quickly that I couldn't be only a director. I had to be a producer. I would have to make sure my films get made. And how does one do that? I don't think you can think too much about it before you do it. Then you will never do it. You just talk to a lot of people, look for the very few who understand what you're trying to do and appreciate your efforts and support you. So you go on to make what I believe is your first film, First Look. What is that process like? First Look is a documentary I made about the first cultural exchange between the U.S. and Cuba since the Cuban Revolution. Two then young painters, Eduardo Roca and Nelson Dominguez, came to the U.S., to San Francisco and New York for exhibits and to meet with artists here. I had been in Cuba before that, and I knew them and I knew they were coming. And I knew how much the arts can jump over barriers. They can transcend. They can bring people together. And I thought this was a great opportunity to make a film about something that was transformative and eye-opening for both, for them here and for the public in the U.S. That's how the film came about. And speaking of support, I was very, very grateful for the support I got from Harry Belafonte. There I was, a a young first-time filmmaker, and he said, do it. He was just hanging around. You're like, Harry, what's up? Was he just there? Well, I wish he were still (laughs) hanging around. I know. I met him. Someone said you should meet him. I wasn't sure at all if he would want to meet with me, but he met with me. I wasn't sure if he liked what I was doing, but he liked it. So it was surprises at every step. It was venturing out of my own comfort zone in a way and saying, well, take a chance. What can he say? No, go away. But he didn't. He said, yes, go for it. When you think back in that moment of making that first film, it can be a very exciting, optimistic time for a filmmaker. But I think sometimes, depending on who you are, there can be a lot of fear attached to making it happen and, and this pressure to make everything right and really do it the way it's supposed to be done, however you view that in your mind, whether that's true or not. Do you remember your headspace at the time? It was very anxiety-ridden, the whole process. Because there were so many people out there saying, oh, you can't do it. This isn't worth it. And you were fighting them saying, it is worth it. I can do it. And then you were thinking, can I do it? You know, on my first shoot in Cuba, I did not have the film stock to go. I did not have the budget for it. Film, if you remember, was very, very expensive. Sure. Cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars for each roll that lasted, what, 10 minutes? And then you need to develop it, which is expensive too. That's right. And again, you know, I was outside one of the broadcast studios, not by any design. I just happened to be there. And those were in the days of the public telephone booths. I was talking to a friend, confiding in her about, I'm set to go, but I don't have the film stock and I don't have the money for it. Out of the blue, this is the wonderful part of people overhearing you. Eavesdroppers. There you go. Someone who was about to enter that studio tapped on that 
glass of a public phone booth and asked me to come out and said, what do you need? What are you doing? And when I explained, he said, wait a minute, went into the building, came back with the whole pile of short ends. Those were leftover, unused rolls of film, which any broadcast studio had lots of. He said, take this, go make your film. So unbelievable things do happen. And that was tremendous. There was also Erwin Young, who was the head of Duart Labs at that time. And again, there was this feeling of, oh, is Erwin going to want to talk to me? You know, some of it is that here I am, an Indian-American woman making her first film about Cuban artists. I have no funding. What do I do? He was amazing. He wanted to hear about the project. And he said, you have to go and shoot it. And I said, but Erwin, I have to develop it. I said, well, we'll talk. We'll talk. So there were people who helped me along the way, and I'm very, very grateful to them. Without them, I wouldn't have been able to make the film because there were too many others who said, go away. It's interesting sometimes when you kind of just force yourself into the storm, how sometimes things just materialize. I mean, maybe they don't, but there's that chance that can change your trajectory completely. You have to take the risk. As a filmmaker, you're in a risky business anyway. Making the film is risky. The creative process is risky. So you have to take the risk of talking to people. So you finally complete this first film and you now understand how challenging it is in the process. Are you ready to move forward and go to the next one? Or is there a a grieving process, a process where you need to reflect on what just happened? I don't think it's a grieving process. It's more a dazed period when you do think about, oh, what have I gone and done? Am I done? It's done. It's out there. I have to, in my work, give myself a little time to absorb that moment of having completed one film before moving on to the next one. But before you know it, you do move on to the next one because that's what you do. It's ingrained. That's right. I want to fast forward quite a bit in time and space from this first film to the Bengali. I get the impression when watching it that going into it, I imagine there were a lot of questions in terms of what would happen or what the ending of this film could be. Can you speak about the Bengali, the film itself, what it explores? The Bengali is a documentary in which I take an African-American woman back to India with me in search of her family's past. Now, it's triggered by a lost chapter of history about the first South Asian men who came to the U.S. And in the East Coast, they married African-American women. This was way back in the 19th and 20th century. I make a present day story out of it because a lot of these families have a yearning to know more about their legendary grandfathers. So on one level, it's the journey. We don't know what we'll find because there's not much information. On another level, it's a story about who we are and where we come from, which is really about all of us and the stories we grow up with generation to generation. The challenge of making the film was to see if the journey would have any tangible outcome. On the other hand, I think we all hold on to the myths we grow up with. That helps us to survive, and that's fine. So it works on many levels. You know, our past really shapes our present and will have an impact on our future. So in that sense, 
It's a film about all of that. It's a film about family. You speak about we hold on to the myths we grow up with. Speak a bit more about how that becomes part of the Bengali, the story. Well, I think, you know, in many cases, people are not in direct contact with where they come from. I have the privilege of knowing my family in India and going back to India a lot. I spoke to my nephew this morning. So all of that is very much a part of my life today. And so many people are not in touch with where they come from, but they hear stories. They wonder about the place, the people. And in our global society, there's so much movement of peoples. Sure. And sometimes people lose touch with where they come from because the generations move on. Sometimes for other darker reasons, they can't stay in touch with where they come from. And I think what happens is stories become stories. And that's fine as long as they reinforce the wonderfulness of family and the wonderfulness of the people we're telling stories about. People become myths. Someone who was poor can become rich in a story. Someone who was not educated can become highly educated in a story. And it's okay. Part of going back to where you come from, if you haven't been in touch with that past, is probably partly that fear of what if none of it is true. Mm. Then some acceptance of the fact that some of the wonderful things are true. In fact, in the Bengali, the woman you speak of who is followed throughout the film, Fatima, I think she says something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing what she says. Part of me is worried that, you know, what I imagine isn't actually there true, which is interesting because, of course, she knows about this distant relative and it seems like human nature to imagine what their life was like, who they could have been or who they were. What was the process of going from meeting Fatima to making a film with her? I got to know Fatima in the same way that I know many other people in my films. When I first met her, she is a writer. I'm a filmmaker. She seemed to me to be an African-American woman. So it was much further on in our conversations that she said to me, you know, I have a grandfather from India. She lives in New Orleans. Were you in New Orleans at the time meeting her there? Or where does that happen? No, I met her in New York because okay. she also spends time in New York. And when she said, I have a grandfather from India, even then I didn't, I thought that's possible. And then she said he was from Bengal. So I was surprised that she had a grandfather from India. She was surprised that he was from Bengal, which is where I'm from. And this immediately brought to my mind what my mother had always told me. My mother was a history teacher. She had said, you know, we're not the first Indians in this country. The first Indians came long before us, but you won't find that in the history books. You're going to have to find out more about that yourself. So I discovered this is part of the story of the first Indians that came to America. They came from Bengal. They were rural folk. They came before the 1924 Alien Act that stopped everyone from that part of the world from coming here. They arrived at port cities and said they were merchants. They were able to enter easily at that time because merchants are self-supporting. And they were industrious. They settled in many cities along the East Coast, New Orleans, Atlanta, different places. They worked very hard as peddlers, usually, and made a good living. I met one person in New Orleans who 
talked very proudly of her grandfather, who used to sell perfume. And he actually sometimes made $10 a day, which was a lot of money. So this was very impressive. I know there is discussion about times it was difficult to fund this film. What keeps you going? How do you decide that it's worth pursuing this when there's not necessarily a clear financial path to do so? That's the story of independent filmmaking. You're like, I've been doing that for years. Yeah, that's just what you do. Yeah, you jump into an idea and you're not going to let it go because it means something to you. You have a story to tell and you keep going regardless. The creative side of your brain, you keep very separate from the fundraising side. Compartmentalize, huh? Absolutely. So you and Farma, you make plans to collaborate in this film in Fly to Calcutta, where she believed her grandfather lived. What are the conversations like with both her and your crew in terms of how you're going to do this? You don't know what to expect. There's a lot of variables. Is there a certain level of planning when you can't plan happening? I wouldn't call it planning. I would just call it thinking, wondering. I found her grandfather's village by calling everybody in Kolkata or Calcutta because that's the best way to do it. It doesn't exist on maps and no one had heard of it because it's very remote. When we finally identified where he came from, I called everybody I knew. And what was really wonderful was that they said, we're on it. Nobody said, oh, crazy idea. I don't know. I can't do this. There were text messages flying all over. There were phone calls going all over. And that's how I found the village. Without that help, it would not have happened. And we worked with a crew that was both from here. I took a cinematographer from here because I wanted the same look a visual continuity between India and New Orleans. But we had a production manager, a sound recordist, assistants who were from Calcutta. And we would trek out all over the place to do our shoot. And I think what helped was that many of us speak the language, know the culture. And that was a way for those who didn't know the culture that well to find access with us as guides. On that note, it's interesting. You are on screen in the film. You play a large role in the film in the sense that you do speak the language and Fatima does not. So you serve as a, a translator in a way, kind of bridging the gap between her when you go to this village and the people who live there. Did you originally know when you set out to make the film that you would be in the film? Was that a discussion you had with yourself? Well, I knew I would have to translate. Mm -hmm. I also knew I would have to guide and be a facilitator between very different cultures. I didn't know that I would have to appear in the film at just a few moments to give the larger framework of the story, that this was not one person's experience, but it was a larger experience that is of relevance to all of us of the South Asian diaspora, all of us in the world who are wondering where they come from. That was the leap I had to make to agree to be on screen just for a few minutes. That was not an easy leap. Was that your first time being in one of your films? Yes. Yeah. It may very well be the last time. Oh, really? Scarred you? <laughs> yeah. No, you know, I don't, I don't have a need to be in my films. I like being behind the camera, but it was necessary. You do what you have to do to tell your story. Sure. We're on this idea of, of you serving as translator and kind of bridging the gap between different culture. When you first go there, there is what I might say a healthy amount of skepticism in terms of 
who Fatima is and her intent. So if you're living somewhere and someone you don't know comes into your space, you've got questions. I would assume I wasn't there, of course. Of course. These villagers had never seen an American or an African-American. They didn't even know what an African-American is. They'd never seen an American. Strangers don't go there. So you show up in my house and say you're my long-lost relative. You say, oh, really? And it takes time and the building of relationships. I think in this case, the women were key in opening the door. When the women are able to laugh together and share little moments of how they do this embroidery stitch or how they cook something, that sparks a trust that opens the door. Because too often, People walk into a place and say, this is my question, give me the answer. And there can be no question, there can be no answer without trust, without an understanding of why you're asking that question. So that's what really broke the ice and opened things up. Trust. Trust and laughter. Shared laughter, shared little moments of one's life. Sometimes big questions are too much to handle out of the blue. If you share the little moments, you can get to the big question. You're talking about this idea of trust, which feels central to the entire story. There's a lot of trust. Bottom was, in a sense, trusting you to tell this story, collaborating together. You're collaborating with people you've never met before. When you take this footage, are you thinking in terms of central themes as you build and construct these scenes and make this very nuanced film? Are you thinking about the theme of trust or a certain theme that enables you to build this narrative from the first scene through the last? I suppose I am. While I'm making the film, I don't think of it in these large terms, which are somewhat philosophical, intellectual, worthy of discussing, but they kind of steer you away from the reality of the filmmaking. I think of it more, for example, while we were there, the people in the village spoke to me about their concerns, their questions, their curiosity. And I thought, well, yes, this is part of the story. It can't be just a one-sided narrative of the person from the West going to the East. And this is what I bring to it as someone who relates to both cultures. So that's why I included that. And of course, that's a thread that goes through the film. And is that about trust? Probably. But that's for film critics to decide. (laughs) It's about building trust. But I just wanted to capture every moment of how they felt. Do you see in some ways documentary more as a presentation of ideas and people as opposed to defining particular themes? Well, I think in all my films, people are central. People are at the heart of the story and out of the people comes the story and then out of the story come the themes and issues. That's my approach. Everyone approaches it differently. From a mechanic side of making this film, the cinematography felt very specific and intentional. I think a lot about the power of the lens and how seductive imagery can be, how beautiful it can be or not. Are these things you consider when you're making a film such as the Bengali? Are you ever concerned or curious about what would happen if the images are too beautiful or not beautiful enough? or aesthetically what a particular approach will mean when you go into this space? And did you define certain goals based on these ideas? I don't think I aim for beautiful as the word that would describe the images I go for. 
in the case of the Bengali, I spent a lot of time sharing with the cinematographer images of India, photographs by great Indian photographers like Raghubir Singh, artwork and shots of places I'd been, snapshots, so he could understand the colors and the space. And that's what I was aiming for. A sense of place is very important in all my films. And that India does have beautiful colors. It has beautiful light. But to recognize that in the camera work, not necessarily make that the central focus, because the story is the focus. And the cinematography backs it up. The editing backs it up. The music backs it up. In the case of the Bengali, animation backs it up. Speaking to animation, I found it really interesting how it was integrated into this project. How challenging is it to consider how to integrate these elements of animation to help tell stories of the past or history that obviously is not recorded in contemporary times and seamlessly, like you did, place it in the middle and in, in between footage of current day where you're recording the events that are transpiring? It's very challenging. At the same time, it was very exciting because I've never worked with animation before. I turned to animation because there's very little imagery of these communities in those times. And what I saw didn't meet my expectations. You know, I felt that in New Orleans, the two people, the South Asians and the African-Americans, lived in a community that definitely faced barriers against white America. But within the community, there was a liveliness that made it rich and perhaps gave them the determination to keep going. The same thing in India. I felt that in the marketplace, when men from the village came and heard visiting foreign sailors talk about lands like America, they were excited by it. They didn't even speak English that well, but there had to be something about it right. that made them want to go. So I was looking for something full of life that I wasn't seeing in the existing archival footage, what little there was. That's when I turned to animation. And it was very exciting when I spoke to the animator who did the work on this film, Maya Edelman, really understood right away what we were looking for. Because animation is a challenge. In this case, you bring it on after the editing has already well underway. And there's a story that's unfolding. There's a structure and a pace and a rhythm. And the animation has to work with it in tone and in the way it's designed. Two, at a certain point, you have to commit to the animation. It's not like a shot you've selected that you record in real time. Once someone has animated two minutes of a scene that takes a while to animate, ideally you have faith in that, those aesthetic choices and how they're going to be woven into that scene. We talked about it mm -hmm. before starting and it was obvious that she got it. Yeah. No other animator could do it. And we worked, the editor, the animator and I worked together, and there was no doubt she was going to do something wonderful for us and bring something of herself to the film, which is the greatest part of collaboration. To that note, too, you know, the editing was fantastic, of course. What is the process like of working with your editor as you watch? There's so many little scenes that help to build layers and nuance and understand different people and their personalities and their point of view. It's very complex in construction. 
how do you take these pieces and, and build the story with your editor? You know, I've worked with this editor, Lucas Groth, on another film as well on Cuban Canvas. So we have a language that we share. And he also loves music and theater as well as sociology. He has a broad range of interests, which he brings to his editing. So we were able to talk about what we were going for, the mood, underlying themes, what intrigued us in the footage. We had lots of wonderful footage that we couldn't use, and that was rough on us. And so much of the footage is in Bengali, a language that he would tell you now he's almost fluent. I would back him up. Yeah, I wouldn't say no. <laughs> I wouldn't say no. You um, one film and you're good. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, it was a deep dive into a culture, a language, a lifestyle to which he had to bring editing skills. Yeah. And he did it. It was, he was wonderful to work with. I want to switch gears for a moment because I know, you know, our time is short. You've mentioned that you've had a strong connection to Eminem Manhattan Neighborhood Network. Of course, we are right now in the Eminem studios recording this podcast. What is your connection to this space? How do you feel connected to Eminem? I'm connected to Eminem on a literal level. I'm on the board of Eminem. Sure. But I joined the board because I feel a connection to Eminem. I love the programming. I love the commitment to giving voice to many different communities, to all communities. I love uh, the commitment to state-of-the-art technology because voice without technology is not heard. I love its goals. I love what MNN stands for. Hats off to MNN for having been here for so many years and thriving still. It's just a place. It's an institution. It's an organization. It's a community. It's all those things in one, and that's what connects me to Eminem. Kaveri, I want to thank you for coming in today. Really appreciate this conversation. It was great to be here. It was wonderful talking to you. From the New York City Center for Media Education, this has been CME Presents, available wherever you get your podcasts. Music is by Jacob Backer, William Hutchison, and Sean Sparacino. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review. And don't forget to check out our website at nyccenterformediaeducation.org for more information about media making and filmmaking classes. <laughs>